Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, y'all. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. Thank you for tuning in. This is our food insecurity series, and we are continuing the conversation today with Rachel Cooper and Curtis Hills from Every Texan. So I was really excited to talk with them, and I was just sharing with Nicole. I don't think I realized that Every Texan is a think tank. I thought of them more as an advocacy group, which they are. They're also an engagement arm in this like political world. But it was so great to learn more about their organization and the work they do around food insecurity in Texas. As a matter of fact, we reached out initially to Curtis because we found this article that he wrote called Changes to SNAP Benefits Will Worsen Food Insecurity in Texas, But Help is Available. And I was like, ooh, someone who knows specifics about SNAP in Texas. This is great. So we reached out because Curtis is a little bit newer to every Texan. We were like, and let's have Rachel come in, too, because she can bring some of that history, the organization. Their specific titles is Rachel is the director of health and food justice. And Curtis is a food policy analyst. So, Nicole, what are some of the things still ringing in your head after our conversation? They both occupy such interesting lanes and both perspectives are so important and fascinating. And I really appreciated the information that they brought. And specifically, one thing that sticks out is when Rachel was talking about what it's like for working families and for working Texans and how policy decisions, for instance, specifically around our minimum wage affect people, what that really means for their paychecks each month or each week, however they are paid. It really brought it home in a way that I think I needed to hear. It was such a great reminder. And Curtis also, like when he talked about SNAP for college students, that was just a perspective I had never heard nor thought of before. And then the implications of that really made my mind start racing. So they both have such important pieces to bring. So I'm so glad we had both of them. Yeah, totally agree. And I feel like in this series, what we've been hearing over and over again is like the root causes of food insecurity or poverty, but we haven't really filled in that blank. But I feel like this conversation started to go there. And that was really helpful to connect those dots and be like, people are in this situation because of this. We have these programs because they need assistance. But if we had different policy, maybe we wouldn't need these programs or wouldn't need them to the scale that we need them. And it came back again, as we've heard this in our podcast, that these are political choices that have us where we are in this moment of time. And this our landscape could look different in the future if we make different political choices. So again, appreciated them emphasizing that part of the conversation. So check this episode out, y'all. It's a good one. Hey, thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, we're so excited. Before we get into like the meat of the episode, get to learn a little bit more about our guests and their connection to Texas. So we would love it if y'all could tell us, are you from Texas? And what was your upbringing like? Were you part of a family that was very political or no, we don't go there? I am not from Texas. I'm from Mississippi, still the South. 
still a southern state. It is like Texas in like so many ways. I mean, Texas is larger, but Texas is very much like agriculture and Mississippi. You can't drive through Mississippi without seeing a soybean field. So I grew up on a farm in Mississippi. I was raised mostly by my granddad or my grandparents, my grandma too. So my history with just like work, like this work in particular came from community organizing and it was an escape from the farm so every summer i would every summer evening i would work with my granddad on the farm planting and then the fall that would be like a harvest and i always hated being in the sun like i always hated being in the sun so this work kind of came to me via angel at church who ran a community-based organization and as far as politics in my family no we didn't really discuss uh, politics that much in my family. Aside from the news, my granddad watched the news every night. I Now, I, I mean, obviously you have other platforms. So I don't tend to like tune into the news unless it's like on the web. But no, not at all. Not really. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. How about you, Rachel? Curtis and I have very different start. I'm actually, I was born in Jamaica and oh. my father was a politician in Jamaica back then things got very crazy dangerous and so we had to leave and so we moved to the states and we moved around a little bit and ended up coming to texas back in 1981 to houston in many ways i do consider texas home because i've been here since junior high basically and but yeah politics was something we talked a lot about my father loved to talk about politics, about race, about religion, about, he just liked to debate people. And that's how I got drawn into the world of ideas and policy and how we could change things. Oh yeah, I love that. I don't know about you, Claire, but I feel like we could spend a whole interview. I wanna hear so much more about the ways that each of you grew up. Curtis, I'm fascinated by the idea of growing up on a farm in Mississippi. I know that you wanted to escape, but I just, just want to pick your brain for every little piece of it. And then Rachel, my dad is from Barbados, which is in Jamaica, but still these island men who love to just engage anybody and everybody. I completely relate to that. There is no place we can go that my father isn't going to somehow, it's almost like he makes friends, but he just cannot help himself. He is always engaging someone in something. Like the last time we went out to dinner. This is such a ridiculous story, but he can write in Sanskrit. And so he insisted on writing our waiter's name. But then also it turns out the waiter's girlfriend also worked at the same restaurant. So he called her over. So by the end, my dad is writing on these napkins and talking to them about the languages he's learned. And there's something about people from the West Indies. So anyway, just had to share the little tidbits. <laughs> That's great. Your dad would have been a natural politician. Just come on, folks. Let's have a party. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. I would love to ask y'all about Every Texan and if y'all could share what the mission is of that organization and how you got connected with Every Texan. So Every Texan, we used to be called Center for Public Policy Priorities, and we started out as a just a think tank, right? So we work on many of the issues that face Texans and low-income Texans specifically, like food and nutrition, healthcare, education, taxes, budget. And we still do those things, but now we're known as every Texan. And we really try to focus on those things with a more of an equity lens and think about it through the 
Texas will only succeed if its people succeed and that your where you were born shouldn't determine your future, that everyone should have an equitable shot. And we try to do more in terms of engagement and not just be a policy shop. And so our team, Curtis and I work together on the health and food justice team. And yeah, I came to it. So I graduated college from University of Houston and got a master's at Northwestern. And I came back to Texas briefly and realized at that time, there really wasn't much happening in the policy space where I thought I could fit in. And so I left and went to New York and then to DC to work. And then when an opportunity came to come back to Texas, I took it because my family was still here. And so, yeah, I've been back for the last 10 years. Great. How about you, Curtis? How did you end up at Every Texan? Yeah. So just the whole nonprofit realm, I've kind of been working in my whole life. It did start from the farm. So like the escape, but there are a lot of issues going on in my community in Lexington. And so that was juvenile justice reform or whether that was teen pregnancy or environmental justice. So that those are things I found to be of interest to me. And luckily, there was a community-based organization in my hometown that was doing that work. So I got started with the nonprofit space, like, really early on. And I say I hated the farm, but through organizing and through just learning from people with way more wisdom than me, I found the connection between farming and community organizing and grassroots approach and civic activism and all of the work. So, uh, But how I got to Every Texan, Every Texan kind of fell in my lap. I, after college, I did a fellowship with the Congressional Hunger Center and was working around food policy, working with community-based organizations. There was two parts of the fellowship. One sent me to Alabama to do grassroots work. The other sent me to D.C. to work with the Congressional Hunger Center directly to do work around food insecurity and college hunger. And so while I was ending that fellowship, the director told me that, hey, there's a position opening up in Texas. And at the time, he said that the person was that was leaving was an Emerson fellow. Don't really know if that's what it was or not. But whenever I interviewed for the job, Rachel said she was looking for someone kind of with my expertise and also someone who had like a community outreach approach to the work. And so like, I didn't have to add anything extra to get to every text. And it was just like, it fell in my lap. I was the person Rachel wanted. And yeah, that's how I got here. Yeah, that's so great. It was the right place, the right time. I want to take just a quick pause and ask a question about every Texan starting out as a think tank. Because on this show, we try to help people understand the different components that add to our government, whether it's like lobbyists or staffers, think tanks, like how do think tanks mix into the policy that we end up getting as Texans? What's their role in this whole government scheme? When you think about it, there's so many different policies and so many different issues that no one legislator can or their staff can keep up. They cannot be experts in everything. So the folks who are experts in any particular policy area are either the agencies that have to implement the policies or folks like us, the think tanks, who can immerse themselves in it and understand it and then think about what 
do we want to see change? How would it work better depending on our ideological viewpoint for our state or for how can we maximize the program better, the program, whatever it is. Sometimes it's how to kill the program, right? And then that person, that analyst then takes those ideas, writes them down, advertises them, goes to talk to the legislature, goes to, they become a trusted source that the legislators, they will turn to for ideas and a seal of approval, or is this even legal or so? Yeah, that's the space we occupy. And Claire, to follow up, I think it might be wise if we also just touch on how think tanks are funded. It could be a misconception that they're government funded. They are not correct. They're typically nonprofits that are funded by donations. Yeah, we are completely funded by grants and donations. We don't accept government funds, which allows you to then be a voice that can say this is wrong or we disagree. We work with a lot of organizations, partners, some of who do have government grants, say they are do the outreach for a program or whatever. And sometimes they are restricted in what they can say because they have a contractual agreement with a government agency, we are more independent. And so we can say what we think needs to be said without fearing retribution to our budget. So yeah, it's a mixture of donations and grants from foundations and others. Yeah, that's really helpful. Before we move into food insecurity, can you just tell us about the lens that every Texan is seeing policy through? What is like the tenants that y'all abide by that help guide the policies that you're proposing to legislators? When I first got to the organization, the organization was really policy focused. And as I've like been at the organization a little bit over a year now, like I see how the organization, even though like others may not like see it, I see it as like policy and community always have been connected within the organization. So organization has always, I feel, kind of been connected enough to the community to where they know the issues that matter to people and kind of use this community focused land, right? Like, so there are things that we're always going to work on when it comes to like food insecurity, right? There are going to always be issues around it. But I think, yeah, since I've come on, the organization has really used a community lens. I don't know that Rachel would agree with, I don't know how much Rachel would agree with that, but from the information Rachel has developed at the organization and the information others has the others have developed. I think the organization uses a community lens to kind of lead their work. Now, in the sense of just like direct community outreach, I think that's like our next step. But I do think the organization, yeah, uses what's going on with everyday Texans, like the mission says, to kind of lead the work that we're doing. Because if we're not in tune with what's going on within a community, then we really have no work to do because we really can't speak to the issues in a real way. I think maybe, I feel like, Curtis, maybe you're using the word community in a way that is like a shortcut, I'm going to guess, for your work and the people that you serve. But I wonder, it feels as if we're talking like working class Texans, people who maybe don't have the same advantages in terms of generational wealth, or I feel like there's maybe some code for community that we need to crack a little. If you had to really break down what community means to you and who those folks are, what do those everyday Texans look like? 
Yeah. So for me, the everyday Texans are the folks that aren't <laughs> making like six figures, right? Uh, the everyday Texans for me are the folks that are very much working class people who are keeping the economy going, who work their butts off to get the money that they do make, but still need a little bit of help. And so when I when I speak to community, I don't know that I'm just talking about a low income folks, but I'm talking about folks that if it wasn't for them, the economy wouldn't keep going. I'm talking about like the folks that work at your local grocery store or someone that just works in retail or even the person who does like landscaping, like the folks that are really doing what I see as essential work that is a lot of times like overlooked. Yeah, I think those are the common folk, right? <laughs> I see Texans as people like me, people like my granddad and the people that I grew up around. That's what I see. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that helps paint a picture of who we're talking about and who y'all seem to be mindful of in your work. So I'd love to transition into understanding food insecurity. Nicole and I have been learning that one in eight Texans is food insecure, which is mind blowing. I'm like, that's a lot of Texans. And we also know a lot of these folks have jobs and they're working, but they're still living on those ra- on that razor's edge. Why are so many people going hungry in Texas in spite of the fact that they're working and have full time jobs? And what we were saying is like they're the everyday essential Texans, but they're also underpaid. Texans. We celebrate the fact that we're a low-wage state. We are comfortable with the fact that we've never raised the minimum wage, that we don't guarantee benefits of any sort for folks. We've turned the right to work almost into the right to exploit folks in terms of people can be working 30, 40 hours a week, not get health insurance, not get family leave time, sick leave, vacation leave, not get a living wage. Like we are comfortable, it seems, with paying people for an hour of their labor, hard, physically demanding work, less than it costs to buy a meal. I think about one of those groups of everyday people. We talk about folks who are disabled but then there's the folks who take care of the disabled or the children or caretakers. We're a state who our state government chooses to pay home health aides, taking care of the weakest, most dependent folks in our state, $10 and I think it's 13 cents an hour. That's our government, that's us paying that for an hour of somebody's time to save somebody else from dying basically. and. How do you then take $10 of 13 cents and then take care of your own children? The math doesn't work. So you've got people who can't make ends meet on their own and they have to figure out what gets paid this week. And a lot of times the thing that they can't pay for is food. So they go to food banks, they cut meals, they pray to God their kids have can go to school and eat at school. And when any of those pillars breaks, as a parent, I'm happy summer when summer comes around because I'm thinking more about, oh, I don't have to worry about the school schedule, blah, 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 blah. But another mother might be thinking, 
how am I going to feed my child this week when there's no school lunch and there's no school breakfast and every meal's on me and there's no extra money for this. So it's intrinsically tied to income and our willingness to not pay people what they're actually worth. It makes me think of our conversation with Celia Cole from Feeding Texas and something she kept saying was that hunger is a money problem. And I'm like, sure seems that. I've also heard that food is an indicator of other problems. It's like the check engine light. If you don't have food, there's probably a whole lot of other things that you're also like on that razor's edge with. So I want to circle back real quick because this caught my ear. Can you talk about the right to work and what that means and how that plays into depressed wages here in this state? There's this lack of security and that is okay with us, right? That workers shouldn't be able to demand or expect certain floors. There should be a floor and your job, hopefully in a modern world, should be safe, be free of harassment, have some sense of security, and also just meet your basic needs to live at the bare minimum. But we don't do that as a political choice. And it all comes back to choices. They're all political choices. So the right to organize here is much, it's much harder to organize here. It's much harder for labor to exert their rights here than in other places. And that's a philosophical choice, an ideological choice, whatever you want to call it. But it has consequences and people are doing the same job here as they could in another state and be paid significantly less for the same amount of labor and or at least not have, even if it's not just cash, it's those other benefits that come along with it, right? Like not having health care is incredibly expensive. We don't think about it that way. We think about health care as being health insurance is expensive, blah, blah, blah. But not having it is even more expensive for folks. So when you don't have a, any kind of safety net and you don't have any kind of health care, what to you and me, like my child trips and needs stitches, that is bad and I have to take her to the doctor and whatever, that bill is not going to break me. Someone without health insurance, that bill could definitely break them. And it definitely could take away their food budget for the rest of the month and more. It's also much more likely to ruin their credit. Once you have bad credit, everything else in life becomes more expensive. And you need a loan to buy a car. You need a loan to do this. You need, there are a lot of jobs who won't hire you if you have bad credit, right? They're all linked together. So families don't see these as separate things. They feel them because they're all interconnected with each other. And once you are stuck in it, it's really hard to pull yourself out. If I can chime in to uh, what Rachel is saying, all of this can be changed with policy. And oftentimes what I've learned since being at the organization, it's not that like the policies aren't written in a way where change can be made. It's kind of the opposite. It's like, well, sometimes they're written in a way that, yeah, this makes total sense. But lawmakers aren't really like utilizing the policies that they even write to like the full extent. And one of the things I think about is inflation, right? And how our policies 
now currently aren't an indication of our current economic conditions. And so with everything Rachel just said, like these are issues that families have been facing for <laughs> and a long time, but even more today. And so every issue Rachel just mentioned, and my feelings are that they're getting worse because the policies aren't a reflection of where we are today. Like Rachel mentioned, people making $10, $9. I see memes all the time about the price of eggs. And so we're talking about the price of one food, let alone a whole shopping, a whole grocery list full of items you would need for a household that people just aren't getting. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Yeah, Nicole, what are your thoughts? I think I really want to highlight that because this keeps coming up for me. And I think it's surprising that it's a new thought that I'm having since we started this series. But the idea that this is a political choice, I think that it's really common for folks who aren't living on that razor's edge to engage in what, if you've listened to our Adam Johnson episode, is like this, oh dear, oh dear, how did this happen? Just this kind of idea that these things, either you don't know that they're happening or it's not in your face, so it's not something that you are aware of or paying attention to, or when you're made aware, you think, oh dear, I don't know, and not recognizing that this is based in political choices that are being made and that it could be different. I think I just like really want to keep hammering in on that, that this isn't something we just have to accept because it's just the way it is. That's not true at all. We can make very different political choices. We can engage with our lawmakers and politicians in ways that they feel accountable and responsible to the people that they are supposed to serve. Oh, it drives me crazy. Yeah, it also makes me think of an interview we did with Dr. Lori Green, and she talked about how activism never stops. And when it does, that's when retrogression creeps in, that we have to cultivate this all the time. Otherwise, we backslide and backslide. And just even thinking about the minimum wage, I forget, like other states can have higher minimum wages than the federal one. When was the current minimum wage established? Because it's 725 an hour right now. Was that like a 1990-something? Yeah, that was back in the 90s. That was like Bill Clinton when the current one was set. And we choose to stay there, right? Other states, it's $15 an hour. Many states now even tie it to inflation or so so it automatically increases. These are all choices that we've made the choice that cities, which are traditionally much more expensive to live in, can't set their own levels, their own minimum wages. Cities can't set sick leave policies to require employers to have an option so someone gets sick and they have to come to work and spread their germs because they can't afford not to miss to to miss work because they don't have a fallback of sick days folks in blue white collar jobs have other folks it's those are all choices we tolerate. Rachel, I'm trying to remember here. So there were cities in Texas that tried to implement policies like you're talking about paid sick time Mm -hmm. off. State said, no, you can't do that. Is that what happened? Yes. Yes. They took to court to say that we couldn't do it. But other, it's, yeah, based on what ideology and what works for certain people. Yeah. Yeah. What we tolerate. 
Yeah, I just wanted to pause on that because like that is a good illustration of a political choice that the state chose. The cities tried to choose one thing and the state chose another. And this is where we are now because of those decision makers. Okay, so I'd like to get back into food insecurity and the particular programs we have in place to assist people who need access to food. So Curtis, can you tell us about SNAP a little bit more? And uh, like, what are some of the qualifications people have to meet to be eligible for SNAP and some of the changes that have happened since the pandemic? Yeah. So SNAP is assistance program, but it's essentially a program for low-income folks who need supplemental nutrition. To be eligible, you there are income requirements. And so you may not meet some part of the federal poverty line or what's listed as the federal poverty line. It's different. It it varies. So I don't really want to speak on numbers, but the program is to assist families. And it's really the application process for the program can be a little difficult and complex for families. So that could say you apply and you really don't know how to fill out the application or I don't know who to call for assistance, then I may not apply for the program or say what's currently going on is families were getting emergency allotments throughout the pandemic. And for a lot of families, that was something that was, you know, needed before the pandemic. And I'm not going down a rabbit hole. I'm just like spelling out the problems at this point. And so on average, you know, families are losing $211 in Texas. And like, I think about my own grocery bill, right? I'm like, I work out and like, I need to fuel my body. So I think about a family that the family of maybe you have one kid, maybe you have two kids, $211 goes a long way to making sure that not only you eat, but your children eat. And so families lost that, stopped in February. And then you have things like, you know, PEBT, that all these, all these programs align together and families were receiving PEBT benefits, the pandemic EBT, right? In the state of Texas, families have been sent out claim codes and just ways of collecting their benefits from this past summer. And when families receive that, then that's, that's it. When your claim, if a family's claim code has expired, then that family has missed out on $391. And so I think the problems with programs like SNAP is that one, they can be very complex. The application process can be, be very complex. The outreach for those programs and, and explaining it in detail can also be very complex, not digestible for families. So it's hard to even understand if I qualify. Yeah, I had a third point, but it's escaping me. So I don't know if Rachel wants to uh, chime in a little bit more. But I do want to end my point by saying SNAP is an amazing program if it's utilized in the way that it's intended to be utilized in. I also want to ask about work requirements, because my understanding is that work requirements have changed. Like maybe I think they were suspended during the pandemic and now they're coming back. Or where does that stand? Are there debates about them coming back? Because I'm not really clear. And I feel like y'all know about this. (laughs) Yeah, work requirements. But under federal law, there have always been or have been for decades work requirements for SNAP, especially for adults. What they, it's a special group they call able-bodied adults without children. Basically, it means you don't have children living at home and you're not physically disabled. Now, we know that there are a lot of folks who have issues and can't work full-time 
but also can't get diagnosed as fully disabled. So whether or not they're able-bodied is not always really true. But during the pandemic, those work requirements were halted. So because under the typical rules, those folks could only stay on SNAP for three months every three years unless they were meeting at least 30 hours of work in Texas. Even though, like I said, they're not always really able to hold down 30 hours or find 30 hours of work, right? So people would constantly get kicked off. People assume that if you see somebody who's, say, homeless or whatever, then they're getting SNAP. But usually they're not. They're not eligible. They can't meet the work requirements. They can't meet a lot of the other issues that and requirements. And so those folks fall through the cracks. That Those pandemic relief measures are all ending in May. And so work requirements will be back. So there will be people who struggle to keep the food on the table. There will definitely be people who will be pushed back into the emergency food system because they can't rely on SNAP or keep their benefits. I do want to chime in a little bit to talk about something that when people mention SNAP, they usually think about just adults receiving SNAP. But I do want to take the time to plug in college SNAP because when when the pandemic ends, when the PHE ends in May, then college students are going to be affected by this too. So while the pandemic was going on, students had certain exemptions. And I, those exemptions were, they had to have an expected family contribution of zero and students had to be eligible to participate a federally financed work study. That's all you needed during the pandemic and you qualify for SNAP if you were a college student. But now those, those exemptions are going to be no longer and you're going to go back to essentially what looks like pre-pandemic requirements. So just to list out a couple, under the age of 18 or 50 or older and enroll full or a half time as a college student at a college university or school, right? You have a physical or mental disability. You work at least 20 hours a week in paid employment, participate in state of funding federally financed work-study program, participate in an on-the-job training program. Those are not all the requirements that students will have to meet, but students will have to meet one of those requirements to be eligible for SNAP. And so when we talk about SNAP, I don't just want it to look like a, a, just a, a family issue or a household issue. I also want to highlight that it very much is a way of making sure that students can also eat. So well, these students are going to be the next people rolling into the workforce. Unfortunately, sometimes students have to pick up jobs in college to feed themselves. And so this not only hurts just adults and and children, this hurts other young people, too. There's another set of young people this hurts. I just wanted to plug that in. Great point, yeah. too, because if we're talking about, I'm thinking about the bootstraps conversation with Lawson Picasso and the idea that if we want people to have opportunities to keep moving up the ladder, whatever that ladder looks like, that is such an excellent way of empowering people to be able to build an education that can help them get higher paying jobs. But if they can't afford to stay in college by providing some benefit in terms of being able to eat, like that, of course, is disproportionately going to affect oh, a certain population. Oh, 
Yeah, what I'm thinking about this conversation regarding the pandemic and the experimentation that happened, like suspending requirements for certain programs, did we not learn? Was it ever, oh, we suspended these programs and actually people benefited. So let's just get it, go, do away with these requirements. Why are we like so quick to be like, okay, time for the requirements back? Is it like that we don't want to spend the money? Like it's behind that. It goes back to the political choices and the ideology. We know it worked. We know we ended hunger or kept hunger in check at a time when record unemployment, record need, when you literally had mile-long lines at food banks, we government responded in new and innovative and amazing ways and pumped a lot of money into the food system, which let's face it, if you put give money to people in the form of SNAP, that frees up other money in their budget so that they can do other things like pay their rent or pay school fees, whatever it is to keep the rest of their life functional. And the money that people do spend at supermarkets also gets turned over in local neighborhoods. Every county, every town benefits from SNAP because Folks spend in the supermarkets, pay taxes, employ workers, the money gets turned back over into the local economy. So SNAP works. And so we saw that. We had other programs like Curtis said, of Pandemic EBT, which was about literally giving parents cash on debit cards to replace the school meals kids were missing when the schools closed down. When schools did reopen, we made school meals free for every child in the country. We didn't ask for paperwork. We didn't income, none of that. Every child eats because every child needs it. That's what we did. All of those things have been tremendously successful if your metric is ending hunger. And if that's what you prioritize and you believe that's the an important thing, then all of those things are worth the investment. I think that one of the reasons we're rolling this back, and this isn't new, this happened after the Great Recession too. There was a response from the hunger community and government to try and intervene and keep down hunger. And then that not only disappeared, the programs were attacked from functioning too well because then the metric was we spent too much. We didn't spend too much. We spent what was needed. But the programs did exactly what they were supposed to do, grow to respond to need. And then when the need disappeared, the program enrollment drops and the amount spent drops. But the attack was that these people were you remember takers, there were makers and takers, and the folks who needed these programs were takers and somehow using this, abusing the system. And then this time around, it's all about, it's no one wants to work because we're giving them too much benefits, too much food, basically. So if we stop feeding them, I think this, this is literally how it sounds to me, stop feeding people and they'll be forced to go work for substandard wages. That's literally what you're saying. Not that people can't work or people need more, but that you, if they don't want to take your $9 an hour job, it's because they're lazy versus 
They don't want to take your $9 an hour job because it's crappy. That's the argument. And that's, I think that's part of the attack. Yeah. It's really interesting to me because I think about the people who are having these conversations and making these policy. It's if you were in that position, would you do that? And if you wouldn't, then maybe you shouldn't be putting that forward if you yourself wouldn't walk that walk. As we're wrapping up, I want to circle back to Texas. Nicole and I talk a lot on the show about how we have a $32.7 billion budget surplus. The comptroller, Glenn Hagar, has said this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for investment. What are some of the things that every Texan would like to see this money go towards to help support those Texans that really need it the most? I think different people, every Texan would give you different answers. We definitely want to see more going into public education, school systems, invest in our kids, invest in higher education. Those are all critical. We would also like to see investments in health and food. Thankfully, at least on the food side, most of the money is federal. There are other states, though, that choose to put state money into ending hunger and to make sure that all kids are fed, make sure that there are states that actually have programs for undocumented folks using state money to make sure that they don't go hungry. Those are all choices that we could be making, but better healthcare, expanding Medicaid, even though that wouldn't cost us much because the feds would pick up the tab for most of it, but we refuse to do that. Better schools and just better investment in our people. We'd like to see paid family leave as an option for folks. Yeah, those are some of the big things, but to put the people's needs first, that we have this whole people's budget idea and that you should be investing in the real people and the real needs of people and making sure that Texas isn't just a great state for business, how about we try being a great state for people? We're not there. We talk about, oh, we're number one in new businesses or low taxation. And we don't talk about how we're number one in uninsured Texans and or number five in hungry people or one of the 43rd for children to grow up. We don't talk about those, but that's Texas too. Yeah, you want to add anything, Curtis? Yeah, I think for me, I'd say specifically, of course, this is piggybacking off of Rachel, but I have two specifically, which is education and food, right? Because I feel like most problems can be solved if you take care of those two. You make sure that students are receiving a quality education and you make sure that, I hate to use the word looking for alternatives to SNAP because you could take that language and and switch it into, oh, we don't need SNAP with that. But that that's not it. I think more or less what I'm saying is there are other ways to explore ending hunger and ending food insecurity. And so I would like to see money spent in exploring alternative options. So that doesn't mean <laughs> uh, people will say that means they're giving people more, so you're making them lazier. But as Rachel pointed out before, people are working for seven, eight, nine dollars an hour. And so they're going to need the program regardless. We're trying to put systems in place where no one is hungry. So that means no one needs these programs. So I think figuring out ways to make sure people are fed is one. But I think also pumping money into education and making sure, one, that folks know what healthy food is. But two, folks can go out here and get jobs and careers that pay them well so that 
when we talk about hunger, it's no longer a, like a real conversation. It's more of a like, oh man, like I could go to the store and get this food. It's more of a choice, I would say, like that. Like I have enough money to go get food. I'm just not going to get food because I have enough money. Wouldn't that be a great problem to have? I really appreciate y'all mentioning education. I was actually thinking about this, Curtis, and you're talking about inflation. I want to say the basic allotment in Texas is like, it's like a little over $6,000. But I saw a presentation by a CFO recently for a school district. And he said, but actually, when you count for inflation, it's $5,700. And it's, oh, my goodness. So really, you have less money because inflation. So you have to do more with less. And that's already not a lot of money as it is. So yeah, it's unreal that we just starve our public school system. And hopefully some changes will happen there. But Nicole, I want to ask you, do you have any final questions before we move to the attention mentions? I don't have any final questions. I'm so grateful for y'all's perspective and time because I feel like I just keep building my understanding of all this. And if I had one conclusion, it feels as if when we're thinking about these policies, what would be so amazing is if lawmakers and people who get to pass policy would talk to folks like you guys at Every Texan who understand the complexities of it all and listen to your input and what you have to say, because there's a lot to consider that unless you're on the ground floor of it, you wouldn't know what matters and what works. And so my hope would just be that our lawmakers would listen to the folks who are on the ground with the people who need these services. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. I love that. Okay, we're going to move into our attention mentions to conclude the show where we just mentioned something that has our attention. So it can be a show you're watching or a podcast you're listening to or a book. And I'll go first since I was thinking about this morning. For y'all who listen, you know this about me, but I'm a podcastaholic. And I was listening to The Daily, which is a New York Times podcast, and they had an episode called A New Child Labor Crisis in America, which is relevant to this conversation. There's been a lot of investigative journalism recently about children who are working in terrible conditions, migrant children specifically, like meatpacking plants and factories. It's just like a variety of problems that's led to the situation where migrant children come to the border because it's easier for them to cross. They will end up with family members or whoever's supporting, whoever's their sponsor. They will work these jobs that are very unsafe because they feel obligated to return money back to their families. And there's terrible consequences that are happening. So this podcast really brought that awareness to me. And I think the reporting is bringing awareness to the nation. But it's just unreal talking about political choices that this is happening and shouldn't be happening and we can stop it. But we have to know that it's there and then pressure our lawmakers to do something about it. Really interesting. Another box to open and learn about. But yeah, that's what I have. How about you, Curtis? I'm just going to call on people. Yeah, I'm going to pick my TV show. Right. So in my downtime, I I don't I don't watch much TV. Not because I don't have time, just because I I don't I just don't sit down and watch much TV. But I think the Bel Air. I was about to say the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, but that's the old one. Bel Air is something that I really be getting into because of like it's depiction of the black family, right? Like most of the TV shows I watch that like are black centered, like have a lot of violence. And for me, if I see something, like I believe I can be that thing, especially if someone looks like me. And so. I just think about like the kids that are growing up now. And I mean, I still feel like a kid myself, right? But if I see a successful dad 
that's like running for political office, but also this great husband and also like this this great just overall family man. I think that does something for me, like as a black man, just like seeing a different family dynamic. So shows like Bel Air, and I mean, I really can't name any, but Bel Air is the one that sticks out to me that makes me think, oh, yeah, this is really good content. Peacock. Okay, nice. Thank you. How about you, Rachel? Because of the stuff I do at work, I tend not to have the mental energy to do anything like too draining or thought-provoking usually. So I I tend to watch a lot of just YouTube videos. So random, like one minute I'll be interior decorating and then next it'll be music video and mixing with history and politics and stuff. I did see one the other night. It was in The Economist magazine I used to really like, but I don't have time to read The Economist. They have the longest articles known to man. I don't have time for that. But they had an interesting one about, is raising children worth it? And it was all about like how so many folks are now either childless or having fewer kids and it's worldwide. And the economic choices, again, and policy choices that make it so hard to have kids and so expensive to have kids. And I've been listening to a lot of related material to that issue lately because I see the change happening with a lot of the people I work with now, younger folks are choosing to be childless. And it's just, a, it's a massive shift happening. Kids are expensive. I can't believe what I pay in childcare, but what are you going to do? It's like, they got to go somewhere during the day. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Nicole, close us out. I will share that I've been listening to Beyonce's album Renaissance that was inspired by going to the drag performer Shangela's show at the Paramount. She closed up with this really amazing number that was a little bit of a lot of the songs from Renaissance. So I was like, okay, let me go ahead and buy the album. I bought it right after and it is just the best to listen to in the car. I know I look crazy as I sing and do all kinds of crazy hand motions. Yes, Beyonce's Renaissance. That's great. Nicole, I want to see these crazy moves one day. (laughs) It's not cute, but it's very fun. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Rachel and Curtis. We appreciate your time and for you explaining more about Every Texan and the super important work y'all are doing. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.